Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. Now, if you remember correctly from last week, and by the way, those of you that are watching online, the notes are identical to last week. We just made it halfway through. So what we're going to do is I'm going to do some review because it doesn't do this chapter justice or this section of this chapter to just pick up right where we left off without rehashing some things, some very important things to help us understand the context of uh, a controversial um, interpretation of this passage that we're trying to show as incorrect. Um, Okay. Turn to the first page of your notes, John chapter 6, part 2. And I'm going to reiterate some things quickly, hopefully. It's um, scary when a preacher says that because you never know, you know, how quick it's going to be. Hopefully it'll be quick and we'll quickly get right around to where we left off. But I I need to kind of reiterate some things from last week. Okay, so especially because it's going to be very relevant in what we look at tonight. Jesus was in Galilee. He just miraculously fed 5,000 people plus from five loaves of what? Bread. That is very important. And two fish. Okay? Miraculously did this. This same crowd is looking for him the next day, and he escapes to Capernaum. So they follow him to Capernaum. This same crowd on the next day is talking to him. Show us a sign that we can believe, because Jesus is telling them, the work that you need to do. They said, what, what, what work should we do? And he said, the work that you need to do is to believe. <coughs> believe on me and him that sent me. And then they say, okay, well, we'll believe, but can you do something first so that you prove it, so that we can believe? This is the same crowd that had a, a miraculous feast, probably less than 24 hours prior, and they're asking Jesus to do something so that they can believe. And what is even more ironic is they ask for a specific sign. They say, Moses gave us bread from heaven. And so um, there's constantly this, this lack of faith, this emphasis on the physical, and they're also trying to tie things back to the God of Israel, and yet they're hesitant about Jesus, whom Jesus proclaims to them over and over and over, he is my father. And so what we're going to see and what we saw last week, again, 
and this may be repetitive, but repetition is the key to learning, right? <clears throat> is that Jesus is emphasizing his relationship with the Father. You can't have the Father and not me, and you can't have me and not the Father. So Jesus says in verse 33, and I'm going to kind of skim through the scripture up until verse number uh, 45, I believe, is where we left off last time. So verse 33, Jesus says, The bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. The whole thing about the book of John is it's emphasizing Jesus' authority. He's the word of God. He is God incarnate. He is God the Son. He has been given all authority and all power. All judgment has been committed to the Son. We just read in John chapter 5. And so uh, Jesus is trying to get them to understand something that's pivotal. Now, I said this last week, but I want to say it again. We need to understand this in a first century Jewish context, not in a 15-1600s Protestant context, because a lot of those theological ideals such as Calvinism and Arminianism and any of that stuff was not in the picture at this point in time. The whole context is Jesus talking to Jewish people about the God that they claim to worship and who he is in reality and what they need to do to be saved. Then he says... I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. We need to understand that even though there are statements that are made here that I believe are taken out of context to try and say something like God elects certain people to heaven and he elects certain people to hell. Those whom he elects, he draws irresistibly to him. They have no choice. Like a robot, I said, you switch the light on. You know, This person's going to be a believer. Switch this robot. This person's not going to be a believer. They're doomed. They have the destiny of, of, of being doomed for all eternity because God chose it. That is not what this passage is teaching. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. It's an act of volition. You need to believe. Okay. Uh, then Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, talks about the reason that that bread was given. The manna from heaven, it was given that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Now, you may think that I'm kind of going over some things I don't need to, but when we talk about the bread, the bread from heaven, Jesus being the bread from heaven, Jesus being the bread of life, that's all in this next section that we are about to get into. So this is very relevant to our context. The bread from heaven is Jesus himself. If any man believes on me, he shall never thirst. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. Jesus is the word of God. Now, verse 36, he brings it back up again. And I'm trying to go through this quickly, but if I, you know, stop me if you have a question. Okay, I don't want to railroad anybody here. So Jesus says in verse 36, But I said unto you that you've seen me, and you believe not. Okay, so he says in verse number 35, I am the bread of life. And then he says, He that believes on me is never going to thirst. He that believes on me is going to have everlasting life. Jesus says multiple times in John 6. Believe, believe, believe. And Jesus says, I say unto you, you've seen me, and you don't believe. Jesus is kind of rebuking them because they ate the bread. And now they're asking for a sign so that they'll believe. They're putting kind of an obstacle to their belief. They're putting uh, something there that Jesus doesn't place there. Jesus wants their faith. He doesn't want them to just, you know, see it and say, okay, um, but you've seen me and you believe not. And then he says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, not draws. Okay, and we talked about how the Father giving somebody to Jesus is synonymous with somebody learning of the Father and believing. It's synonymous with somebody out of their own volition, as we saw in John chapter 4. 
they listened to the men of Samaria. They listened to Jesus talk and they believed on him because of his own words. That wasn't something where God flipped a switch and made them believe. Here, them that are given to Jesus by the Father are those that come to him in faith. They are those that hear God's appeal, believe, which Jesus gives that appeal to this crowd numerous times, and they accept it. Those that accept it are those that, from what we hear here, the Father has given to Jesus. Why does he say the Father has given them to him? Because the important context of this whole passage is Jesus is trying to get a crowd of Jewish people that believe in God. I talked about that book last week, I'll Take God, You Take Jesus, or something like that, you know. They're accepting God, quote-unquote, or they think that they are, and yet refusing to accept the Son. They're refusing to believe Jesus is the Son of God. They're refusing to believe Jesus is the Messiah. They're refusing to believe Jesus is the bread of life, the bread from heaven, the bread of God. They're refusing him, but they say they're accepting God. Jesus says, no man can come to me except the Father draw him. That's not some kind of Calvinistic point. That is just Jesus saying, God is the one that is going to make this all happen. He's the one you claim to worship. And the way that you can come to me is because he is drawing you. And so they're getting the cart before the horse. And those that take this passage and make it some other context other than a first century Jewish crowd that wants to accept God but not Jesus, it, it, it's, it's, it's taking it completely out of context. It's taking the cart, putting it over here, taking the horse and putting it over there and coming up with some completely different interpretation. Um, and we'll see this more clearly even as we go along. Um, this refers to the same group in verse 40. There's a lot of parallelism in this passage. There's a lot of verses that parallel one another. A similar statement is made, except one or two words are changed, and so A equals B. That happens numerous times in John chapter 6. One of them, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, is the same group as in verse 40, everyone which sees the Son and believes on him. John chapter 6, uh, verse, verse 40, and he would have everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. Similar passage to verse 37. The given are those that see the Son and believe. Verse 36, Jesus says to that crowd, you've seen me and you don't believe as a rebuke. And that the Father is uh, intertwined with this process of coming to Christ. It's not that Jesus is just a good teacher. It's not that he's a prophet. It's not that he's like the Messiah that a lot of Jewish people are expecting that's going to be somebody separate from the God of Israel but he is the God of Israel himself in human flesh. And coming to faith in Jesus, I, I made this statement here, uh, maybe it's on the second page, I don't want to get ahead of myself, it's a pretty kind of uh, climactic statement. So. <laughs> but Jesus wants them to understand that the Father is inseparably involved in the process of coming to Jesus to accept him as the Messiah. And he's in effect saying the reason that you aren't believing in me is because you are truly missing the God of Israel. You are not believing in him. You are not trusting in him. He said multiple times, I proceeded forth and I came forth from my father. He uses the phrase, he sent me, he that sent me, he sent me, he that sent me. And John especially, I and my father are one. Um, so many times these phrases are used of Jesus bringing together to a Jewish crowd the connection between he and his father. And that's what's being done here. The transition from the father to the son. Okay, I want to show you something. 
Um, keep your finger there in John, but turn over to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. This is such a, a hefty passage to deal with. This section, the second half really of John chapter 6. That I feel like in order for us to grasp it entirely and move on, especially the fact that some of the things in the beginning of this lesson tie directly into some of the things at the end. I wanted to mention it again. Real quickly, Psalm 2, what Jesus is trying to get them to understand, again, is the transition between knowing the Father, knowing the God of Israel as he is revealed, and now seeing a more full and complete picture through the Son. And that God has chosen, the Father has chosen, to bring salvation to his people through the Son. And so in, in Psalm 2, look at verse 12. Psalm 2, verse 12, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we read, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Now we aren't told whether or not this is a psalm of David. I believe it's kind of accepted that it is. But we need to understand that this idea of the Father showing the world salvation and providing the world salvation and providing for his people salvation, forgiveness, eternal life through the Son doesn't start with John 6. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. But Psalm 2 verse 12 God is saying, the Son, my Son, the same Son that's talked about in, in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 4, God has a Son, and His Son is the way to salvation. And God chose, the Father chose, to make it so that those who trust in His Son could find forgiveness and blessing and hope and salvation. This is exactly what Jesus is trying to get this crowd to understand. How do we become given to the Son? By receiving him, John 1.12, by believing on his name, okay? This isn't some separate act that the Father does outside of our will to bring us to Jesus. This is our response. This is our accountability. Because we've heard, we need to respond. And we are accountable, not only because of what the Bible says, but even nature makes us, as Romans says, without excuse. Because we realize that there's a creator. We realize that we are fallen. Uh, and so, general revelation, as it's called, seeing nature, seeing creation, condemns us uh, so that we are without excuse. There's volition involved. We must respond to God's appeal. Those who respond in faith are given to Jesus. In verse 36, I mentioned this has the sense of this is your fault. You're the one to blame, not the Father. You've seen me, and you don't believe. It's not because of the Father. It's because of your belief or your lack of belief in my relationship with the Father. Jesus told some Jewish people, I believe it's also in John. He says, I came forth and proceeded from God whom you say is your God. And he says, um, but you don't know him. He says, I know him. He said, but if I said that I, and I'm paraphrasing here, he said, if I told you that I did not know him, I'd be a liar just like you. And he didn't mince words there because that crowd was becoming very, hostile against him and against his words. And um, we find oftentimes in Scripture, and we see here as well, you ever heard the phrase, 
law to the proud, grace to the humble. You ever heard that before? As far as witnessing to somebody. Okay, if somebody, and we see this, we see this in scripture. We see how Jesus responds to various people's attitudes. Okay, the Samaritan woman and the people of Samaria. Okay, they could have been called half-breeds and, and all kinds of things by the other people from Judea that hated them, that looked down upon them, that said all kinds of derogatory things against them. But Jesus didn't act that way to them. He didn't condemn them. Why? Because they didn't refuse him. They accepted him. They accepted what he was saying. But we find when Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, okay, many of them, they resist it. They resist his message. They buckle down against it. And then Jesus gives them the law. Okay? Or he gives them a statement that is hard and fast, and it's, it's, it's hard truth. And that's a principle we can use in witnessing to somebody. You know, if somebody is broken or seeking, you know, don't slam them with the Bible. Show them, show them the truth that they're a sinner in need of salvation. Show them God's love. But if somebody is just, you know, made themselves as a stone against it, um, our response shouldn't be, oh, God loves you, and, you know, there is a time for that. <laughs> you, know, you know, but there is different responses that we see Jesus have to different people. And we see his response to them change by the end of this chapter because their lack of faith had become so incredibly um, evident in the forefront of their attitude. Uh, okay, again, Jesus' authority and sonship are front and center Again, in verse 38, he mentions, I came from heaven, from him that sent me. Verse 39, all which he hath given me, which is those who believe, those who come to him by faith. All which he hath given me, I would raise up at the last day. Verse 40, everyone that seeth the Son and believeth may have everlasting life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. Do you see the parallelism? And Mark mentioned this before. I forget what he was talking about. I think it was in Hebrews. He ended up using these phrases and showing how they're parallel. And so those that are given are equal to those that believe. Those that everyone that seeth the Son and believes has everlasting life. Not those that are predisposed and chosen before the foundation of the world against their will to become a believer, but just those that see and believe. Okay? Now, we'll see in this same chapter that God has foreknowledge. At the end of John chapter 6, we will see that God knows who's going to believe before they ever do. But that doesn't mean he makes them do that. He doesn't twist your arm and say, you're not going to believe. He does not do that. Contrawise, he doesn't do the opposite. He doesn't twist somebody's arm, irresistible grace, and say, you're a believer now, and I force you to do it. That's not, that's not how God works. Okay. The will of the Father is those that believe in the Son will be raised up. And then I gave some observations. Um, quick statement. If you are refusing me, you are refusing the Father. The Father is the one whose grace you are rejecting. The Father is the one that's drawing you. Then I talked about in John 12, verse 32, how Jesus says, If I am lifted up, the Son of Man will be lifted up, speaking of his death, his crucifixion. If I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Jesus told in um, John 16, verses 8 through 11, he told the disciples, I need to go away. I need to die. It's expedient that I go away and that I die. He said in John 12, am I lifted up? I'll draw them into myself. John 16, he says, if I go away, the comforter will come. And he's going to convict the whole world of sin and righteousness and judgment. 
okay, to show them their need, not only to show them that they're guilty, but to show them that God is righteous. And uh, Acts 17, God commands all men everywhere to repent. God does not command people to do something that is not possible for them to do. And so, you ready to go into uncharted waters? Okay. Starting at the top here of the next page. Um, I put in blue there. It's not saying there are some who would come, who would want to come, who would believe, but can't because the Father hasn't drawn them. We don't find anywhere the phrase that they cannot believe. You can't believe. You find the phrase uh, in, in the idea, you will not believe, you will not come to me, but we don't find the phrase, you can't believe. It is saying that all who, all who come to Jesus by faith have been drawn by the Father to do so. And again, he's talking to an exclusively Jewish crowd who's accepting God, but not accepting the Son. Accepting the Father, but not the Son. Verse 45, here we go. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. This is a quote from Isaiah 54. And they shall all be taught of God. Then Jesus says this, Every man therefore that hath heard and learned of the Father cometh to me. Okay, so coming to Jesus, believing, coming to faith, seeing the Son and believing, being one of the given, is all synonymous to hearing and learning of the Father. Okay, and that is opposite of what these people were thinking. These Jewish people that Jesus was talking to, they were thinking, well, we're refusing you. We're being hesitant to accept you because of our faith of the God in Israel. Um, what you are saying about being the bread from heaven, we're going to find out, it caused them to turn away. They said, that's it, we're done. We're leaving here. They did not want to accept what Jesus was saying. And all the way back in verse 36, Jesus says, you've seen me and you don't believe. At that point already, they had kind of settled in their mind, this isn't the guy. This isn't who we're looking for. And so what Jesus is trying to get them to understand is that believing is the same as hearing and learning of the Father, whom they claim to have as their God. They were thinking, because of our knowledge of God, because of our knowledge of the Torah, because of what we know uh, about um, the Scriptures, is why we're refusing you. And Jesus turns that on its head and says, learning of the Father, learning the truth from the Scripture will cause you to come to me. It will cause you to believe in me. A right relationship with the Father will bring you into a right relationship with the Son. And you can't have one without the other. Look at John chapter 5. Turn over just a page from John 6. John 5, 37. It says, And the Father himself which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Okay, the Father which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape, and you have not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent, him you believe not. Okay, that is the crux. That is the pivotal point. That's where everything changes when it comes down to whether you believe or not. Because these people in John chapter 5, who were Jewish that were talking to Jesus, that Jesus was giving this truth to? 
He says, you have not his word abiding in you. Verse 38. For whom he hath sent, you believe not. And so the Jewish people of Jesus' day, as well as many Jewish people today, they will look at belief in Jesus and being Jewish diametrically opposed, like, like water and, and, and oil, okay? When in fact, a lot, a lot, a lot of what Jesus teaches in the book of John is trying to get us to understand, no, you have it completely wrong. You understand the Father correctly. You understand the God of Israel correctly. And you will automatically receive me because you will see what he teaches about me. You'll see the teachings in the scripture about the coming Messiah. You will see the teachings in scripture about God having a son. You will see teachings in scripture about God being a plurality and unity. And you will even see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the book of Isaiah and elsewhere. And all of these things, Jesus is trying to get them to understand. If you had a right relationship with the Father, like you're claiming, if you had his word abiding in you, like you're claiming, then you would believe me. You would receive me. But you have not his word abiding in you. Why? Because you don't believe me, whom he hath sent. Okay? John 6. I have a, I have a quote here from a book called Debating Calvinism. Debating Calvinism. It says this, the entire teaching of the Bible indicates that the Father's drawing and giving of the redeemed to Christ is the result of their hearing and learning from the Father through the gospel of God. Okay? So we need to get things in their right order and in the right context. Jesus is talking to Jewish people here about the God of Israel, the God of the Torah. He is saying, those who truly listen and follow the Father Come to him, Jesus. If you aren't coming to Jesus as a Jewish person, you are not following the God of Israel. That is what he's saying. And I'll say it again. If you aren't coming to Jesus as a Jewish person, as a, you know, speaking to Jewish people now, if they aren't coming to Jesus, they aren't following the God of Israel. Heard and learned are parallel to everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him. I mentioned this earlier. The drawing isn't the focus. The actions here are seeing, believing, hearing, and learning. Okay? Now, verse 46. And if I'm going a little bit kind of high speed here, that's because we got 71 verses total. <laughs> okay. But we're, we're right on schedule. We're doing good. Okay? All right. So, verse number 46. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Now, we might see a statement like we do in verse 47, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life, and just say, oh, that's a nice, you know, typical phrase of what Jesus would say in the New Testament, in the Gospels, regarding him being the Savior. Yeah, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. But we need to understand, he's talking to Jewish people that have never heard this before. And he's trying to get them to understand I have authority. I came from the Father. None of you have ever seen God, but I have. I came from God. I came from heaven. Um, Verily I say unto you, he that believeth on me. And that was a huge deal. He that believeth on me has everlasting life. And so we see the statements that Jesus has, and we will continue to see them become more bold 
and kind of more like he's speaking to people that are on the outside rather than speaking to people within the inside crowd. Those that are accepting him, those that are trusting him, he's kind of become, because of their unbelief, more talking at them <laughs> rather than, you know, kind of a face-to-face -face thing because of their unbelief. And then he says in verse 48, and this is why I started back at the beginning. Verse 48, I am that bread of life. Now flip back all the way back to verse 33. The first verse that we had on our handout. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. So here we have a statement that ties all the way back to the beginning of this conversation here in verse 33 about the bread. I am that bread of life. He's bringing it full circle. He's tying it back and trying to get them to believe kind of a... Um, I don't know, I don't want to say a last-ditch effort, but the conversation's winding down, and they're still not believing. And so Jesus is saying, you need to believe on me to be saved. And then he says this, and you'll understand as I go through this, he's getting more and more bold in the statements that he's making. Um, not as lovey-dovey, okay? Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. Okay? His statements have a direct correlation to their heart. His statements and the way that he makes them has a direct correlation to their attitude and the belief or lack thereof in their heart. Listen to me. Your fathers, they ate man in the wilderness, but they're dead. They're not alive anymore. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that if a man eat thereof, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. Again, not the first time in this section of Scripture that a universal statement is made. Not to say universal salvation, okay? We're not talking about the universal fatherhood of God and universal brotherhood of man. But we're talking about the universal possibility of everybody coming to Christ. There's not a soul that Jesus didn't die for. And so uh, he makes the statement, I'm giving my flesh for the life of the world. Not everybody's going to believe but I'm dying for all of them. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, people that have said that the book of John is anti-Semitic, they do not understand the context. They do not understand who Jesus is talking to in contrast with the audience for the book of John. The book of John was written to a worldwide audience, was it not? So often we'll see the phrase, and, and we can just see this in the scripture. We can just see this in the book of John. Although it deals with the Jewish people over and over and over again in the deity of Jesus as the Messiah, over and over and over again, there's also an overarching tone of the world, the world, the world, the world. And if this was written to an exclusively Jewish crowd, okay, those that would read this book being exclusively Jewish, Jesus would not have to say the Jews are the ones that did this or a feast of the Jews as he mentions about Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's not an anti-Semitic term. He's just talking to people that aren't Jewish as far as the, um, the author of the book of John, John himself, writing it about Jewish people in a Jewish context. Everything is immediately happening within uh, the Jewish realm, but those that are going to be reading it later, God knew this, is a worldwide audience. And so when it says the Jews therefore strove among themselves, 
they're all Jewish. Those that believe, the 12 disciples, Jesus himself, everybody's Jewish. But here it's talking about those that were refusing him because of their Judaism, so to speak. And so they're already kind of getting agitated. They strove among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, when Jesus, first he made the statement, uh, the bread that I give is my flesh, which I give, which I will give for the life of the world. And in verse 50, he says, uh, I am the bread that came down from heaven, that if a man eat thereof, he shall not die. Now, some of these passages have been kind of crazily interpreted by various groups. We're going to get to a statement that Jesus makes, which shows the correct interpretation of everything in a single verse. But they're misunderstanding what he's saying. They're not understanding it right. Shall we literally ingest his physical body? How is this possible? And so we see something very interesting here. Jesus now at this point, okay, from this point forward for a while in this chapter, he continues symbolically in the same fashion that he does when he gives parables. Why did Jesus, why did Jesus say that he spoke in parables? There's kind of two crowds listening, right? There's those that are like, give us a sign. Show us that you're the Messiah. The skeptic crowd, the faithless crowd. He goes forward symbolically like he does with parables so that the seeking will find and understand. Somebody that really wants to know what Jesus is saying and believes that he is the Messiah, they're, kinda, they're gonna stick with it. They're gonna listen, they're gonna understand. We see that the disciples at the end of this chapter, Peter says, we're not going to go away. Where else can we go? You have the words of life, Peter says. And so there are those that still hold on and still believe, but there's a great majority that they just, they've come for the free food. And Jesus is making some statements that if they don't interpret them spiritually, they're going to turn away because of their attitude. Jesus said unto them, and this is, it goes down this, this path. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Does that sound familiar, that last half of that verse? Okay, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 39 and verse 40, it says the same thing. The other half of this page here. Verse 39, and this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that all, of he, that all that which he hath given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up at the last day. And then verse 40, everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him hath everlasting life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. And then looking real quickly here at verse 54, whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. We see being one of the given, hearing and learning from the Father, seeing the Son and believing, and eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Son of God are all synonymous. Believing, receiving, trusting, having faith, learning from the Father, hath everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. If they had been listening, they would have heard what Jesus was talking about like four or five verses in a row. Um, but they didn't want to hear. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. Now, Jesus' flesh and Jesus' blood are very, very important. We're going to see some amazing things about Jesus' flesh and Jesus' blood. But they're not in the way that they're being interpreted by this immediate crowd that Jesus is speaking to here. 
As the living Father hath sent me, verse 57, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. Again, he's bringing in the connection between the Father and the Son. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. And so you kind of get the sense, I don't know, I get the sense, I don't know if you do, that in Jesus talking with this group, it's almost become kind of like a debate. Because they say something in their rebuttal or their refusal or their murmuring, and then Jesus responds. And it seems like they're not listening, they're not hearing, they're not getting it, and so Jesus repeats it again in a slightly different fashion. Then he repeats it again in a slightly different fashion. And they are continually refusing to believe and understand what he is teaching. And then, for all y'all who have been to Israel with us, these things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. How amazing is that? This whole entire event took place um, near, most likely, very likely, where we stood over the old synagogue. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Now, there's different thoughts on what a, a disciple is. Normally, in first century Judaism, there was rabbis or masters, okay, those that taught the Torah, those that were looked at as scholars or experts in the word of God and the interpretation thereof, and they had disciples. They had people who followed him, uh, people who followed those teachers, those masters, and sat under their teaching, listened to what they had to say. Does it mean that those that are a disciple are automatically for sure a believer? Those that are saved, those that are truly trusting in Jesus as their Messiah? No, it just meant that they were one of his students, okay? They put themselves under his teaching. They were listening to what he had to say. And that's more than just the 12, okay? Because this multitude here, they're, they're following him around. They followed him all over the place. They came to him, and after he had taught, he fed them on a mountainside because they wanted to hear more, okay? They were his students, so to speak. And now when it comes to the point of making a decision, if they would have just understood that uh, he that, you know, seeth the Son and believeth on him hath of everlasting life, it may have not gotten to this point. But as it can sometimes happen, if there's a classroom setting where a student thinks that they know better than the teacher, you know, they kind of get a heart of pride and say, well, you know, how is this possible? How, how can he say he came down from heaven? How, you know, what, what, what in the world is he trying to teach to us? And then Jesus continues in this fashion that drives the wedge further between the prideful student and the faithful believer. And so we need to understand that him going in this direction is in response to their attitude. Many therefore, verse 60, many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? Verse number 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, doth this offend you? Okay, Jesus knows everything. He knows the hearts of those that said in their heart, only God can forgive sin. You know, that... Uh, that uh, man that was sick of the palsy, okay, and he was let down through the roof by his four friends, 
And the Jewish people there, they were so upset that Jesus was doing what he was doing, but they didn't say anything. They remembered in their hearts, and Jesus knew. It's the same thing here. And so his response, it's not sarcastic, it's not meant to be comical, but it's meant to drive to their heart. Okay? It's meant to get at the problem, which is their heart of unbelief. Does this offend you, he says, when you understand or when you're hearing about how the fact that the Son of God, much like bread and water, food and, and, and drink, gives life, and without it you can have no life, and those people in the wilderness thousands of years before this that ended up, or thousands of years before now, that ended up dying in the wilderness, um, they ate of the manna in that day, but that pointed to the true manna, which is me, and you're refusing it. And he's becoming harder and harder with them. Then we have verse 62. You can flip it over. We made it to the last page. Okay. What and if he shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? This is an interesting, interesting passage, interesting thought. Jesus doesn't immediately blast out at them, you hypocrites. But he says this phrase. He says, what and if you see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? These people were Jewish people that were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. Okay, that was the Bible. That was their Bible. Turn over to Daniel chapter 7. Keep your finger in the book of John. Daniel chapter 7. What Jesus says here, and there's, this is not the only time in the Gospels where Jesus alludes to this passage in Daniel. He does it actually just before he's about to be crucified. And he gets slapped across the face. I think it was by a servant of the priest. Um, because the statement that he makes is saying that he is the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This idea of the Son of Man ascending up where he was before. Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So there's two people in this passage. There's been Jewish um, scholars and rabbis throughout the centuries that have been perplexed by this passage because they see two people there where, according to their understanding, there should only be one, only ever always one. Who is this son of man? It's not Ezekiel. It's somebody far greater, infinitely greater and more powerful than Ezekiel. In fact, this son of man that comes to the Ancient of Days is given power. Look at verse 14. There was given him from the Ancient of Days to the Son of Man. And again, what is the whole thrust of this section of John 6? Jesus is trying to get them to understand the transition, what has been given to him, the authority that he has, and that he is the way of salvation, and that those that believe are entrusted from the Father. He says, And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. Not the Ancient of Days, specifically, but the Son of Man. It was given him from the Ancient of Days, his dominion, 
is an everlasting dominion. You can't have an everlasting dominion unless you yourself are everlasting. Which shall not pass away. In his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. And so, turning back to John 6, verse 62. What Jesus is kind of saying here, and this is my, this is my commentary. Regardless of what you think in your sinful heart, Okay, at this point, the crowd that Jesus was talking to, they were becoming kind of frustrated with him. And their unbelief was becoming deeper and more drastic. And Jesus says, What and if you see, shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? What he's basically saying is, regardless of what you think in your sinful heart, okay, I'm giving you a spiritual truth that you're completely missing the boat. Regardless of what you think in your sinful heart, Jesus is still God. Many will be offended when they realize this. He is saying to his disciples, the only way that all of this makes sense, if you realize that I am the one in Daniel's vision, the Son of Man, to whom was given all of this stuff, not just had it from out of nowhere, but was given, given it from the Ancient of Days. And so the connection is paramount. Then verse 63. And if you understand verse 63... You understand that whole entire passage of Jesus talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. My flesh is meat indeed, my bl blood is drink indeed. And he says, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Two important lessons are learned from this verse, verse 63. Unless the Spirit of God moves in one's life, all efforts are vain. The Spirit is the one that quickens. The flesh profits nothing. And so when they were trying to understand everything that Jesus taught, and many times we see this in Jesus' conversations with the Jewish people in his day, is that they want a physical, literal, just standard miracle or provision and Jesus wants to provide them with a miraculous, everlasting, spiritual blessing that is far beyond whatever their mind could even conceive. And they're completely missing it because they're focused on the literal, physical. Eating his flesh, drinking his blood, we want some, we want some bread so that we don't have to ever thirst again. Give us this bread continually, they say. And I think it was right around verse 30 of John chapter 6. And so Jesus shows, um, unless the Spirit of God moves in one's life, all efforts are vain. You can't just come to me out of nowhere and say, okay, I believe that uh, Jesus is really good or even the Savior apart from believing that he's God. It doesn't work that way. And that's what Jesus is trying to get them to understand. Secondly, Jesus shows that eating his flesh and drinking his blood were spiritual statements. Spiritual statements. My words are spirit and they are life to be taken symbolically. Eternal life being raised up, uh, being transitioned from the Father to the Son, it all kind of hinges on belief. In verse number 64, Jesus says this, But there are some of you that believe not. The words that I'm speaking unto you, their spirit, their life, okay, I'm giving you the, the, the way to be able to have eternal life and forgiveness. But there are some of you that believe not. Then we have this statement. For Jesus knew from the beginning 
who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. And so, like I said, eternal life, being raised up, being transitioned from the Father or the Son. Some of you don't have this. Why? One reason. You don't believe. Okay, that's the key. That's the crux. Even though my words give life, there are some who are spiritual, some here, some who Jesus is talking to right then in that moment. Even though my words give life, there are some who are spiritually dead and will remain as such because of your stubborn heart of unbelief. This will only end in your perishing or destruction. This verse is a great example of the foreknowledge of God. He knows who would believe. He knows. From the foundation of the world, he knows who would believe. That doesn't mean that he makes them believe. That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't die for everybody or give everybody an opportunity. He has foreknowledge. He knows who would believe and who would not. He does not make the choice for them. He simply knows what their voluntary response would be before they respond. Verse 65, and he said, and, and here, I want you to do this, okay? And I, I made some of that gray as opposed to black because I want you to kind of see the audible statement and then the next audible statement without the commentary in between that John gives. Verse 64, but there are some of you that believe not. Therefore, verse 65, I said unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given him of my father. Jesus shows us what the biggest obstacle, the biggest problem, the biggest, if not the only reason, that they are not believing. And it's because they are not truly getting the concept that Jesus is the Son and God is the Father. And God the Father has given the Son not only authority and judgment and power and dominion and glory, but he has saw fit that that is the way, like it says in Psalm 2, kiss the Son. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. If you don't do it, you're going to perish. God the Father has chosen that salvation come through the Son. And Jesus is trying to get them to understand that. And they're thinking that they're doing God's service by refusing Jesus, by thinking that he is not the right one. This is similar, oddly enough. It's interesting. Verse 65. Let's read it again. Therefore I said unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given to him of my father. I noticed when I was going over this again, this verse is very similar to John 14, 6, but in a different way. Puts an interesting spin on it, okay? Jesus says in John 14, 6, no man can come unto the father but by me, okay? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the father but by me. In verse 65 of John 6, Jesus says, No man can come to me except it's through the Father. Jesus is talking to Jewish people that if they try and, like certain groups and cults and weird organizations today, have decided to accept Jesus but believe that he's only just a man, you can't do that. And that is what the Jewish people want to do. That is what they teach. That is what they are expecting, just a man. That's what the Jewish people here in John 6 that are refusing Jesus. They don't want God. They don't want God the Son. They don't want the Son of Man. They want just a good teacher who's going to deliver us from Rome. And so Jesus is continually bringing up the fact that you're not worshiping the Father. 
no man can come to me except it's through the Father. And so he's trying to get to them to understand the backwardsness, if that's a word, <laughs> the backward nature of their belief. They have it all flipped around. Um, it isn't a question of the possibility of belief, but of the avenue, avenue to believing. Jesus is sa not saying it's not possible for you to believe, but he's saying it's not possible for you to believe unless you understand that it's through the Father that I am even sent here and that he is God the Son. And so it's not saying that there's a possibility for some to believe, those that are drawn, those that are given, those that are, you know, brought irresistibly by the Father to belief can be saved, but those that aren't, I'm sorry, you're out of luck. No matter what you do, you're going to be lost for all eternity because God has foreordained it. That's not what it's saying, but it's saying the avenue to belief. Okay, again, we need to get out of that kind of Middle Ages, you know, or, 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 or Protestant Reformation mindset about this passage. He's talking to Jewish people who want to accept the God of Israel, but not Jesus. And so it all comes down to avenue. They want to believe, they want to have salvation, but they don't want to do it in believing what Jesus is saying in Jesus' way, that he is God sent from the Father, and that the true believers in the Father will find faith in the Son. Um, this does not show us why specific people respond to the gospel, but by why anyone can respond. This is not saying that those which believed not weren't drawn, okay, so that they couldn't believe, but rather that they wanted the physical without the spiritual. They wanted miracles without faith, okay? They wanted uh, the temporal, something that they could see and grab and, 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 and touch and have as, 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 as their salvation, their deliverance. They wanted physical bread. They didn't want spiritual salvation, spiritual truth, and they didn't want to understand that Jesus was linked with the Father. They would have been so happy for him just to say, I am a prophet of the God of Israel, and I'm going to deliver you from Rome, and even they would have accepted it if he said, I am the way to salvation, but they don't want to accept it as soon as he says that I'm God. And that's what it comes down to in this passage, if you read between the lines. Um, Jesus speaks in parables and symbolism to separate the seekers from the selfish and the faithful from the faithless. Some of you don't believe. It's because you haven't heard and learned from the Father who I am. Jesus said this in John chapter 6. That's why I said to you, you can't come to me unless you learn it from the Father. Do you, do, do you get it now how this is worded? We have our minds so twisted in our kind of skimming fashion or interpretation of what this passage is teaching um, without understanding who Jesus is talking to and why he's saying the things that he is. It's because you haven't heard and learned from the Father who I am. That's why I said to you, a person can't come unto me unless you learn it from the Father. This is where salvation begins for a Jewish person. For a Jewish person to come, in faith, come to faith in Jesus, they need to realign and readjust and really reinvent based on scripture who God is, who the God of Israel is, and who Jesus said the Father is. That's the beginning. You can't just say, okay, 
Jesus was a good Israeli 2,000 years ago, and I'm just going to put myself behind him as a patriot and a, you know, I love Jesus. That's not what Jesus said you need to do. <laughs> you need to believe that he came forth and was sent from his father. You need to believe that he's the son of man of Daniel chapter 7. You need to believe that no man can come unto the father unless it's through Jesus. All of these things are pivotal and foundational for a Jewish person to come to faith in Jesus. He never says you can't believe. Believing is learning from the Father. If you learn from the Father in the way that Jesus phrases it, in the way that Jesus believes it to be true, when you learn from the Father, you are believing. Okay? The two terms are synonymous. All saved have been drawn, but all those who are drawn are not saved. Okay? According to John 12, 32, all will be drawn, but certainly not all will be saved. Okay? Remember the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world. And that just doesn't mean he's going to convict all kinds of people. You know? Jesus didn't die for all kinds of people, but every person that he might taste death, as Mark said, for, for every man. Okay? Um, okay. Now, before we get to verse number 66, got to make sure that something, I'm not missing something important. Okay. So, um, just want to make sure it wasn't somebody saying, you know, the screen is black or the sound's cutting out or something weird. My dad did that once. He was watching and he, you know, the sound's not going right or something. Okay. Um, before we get into verse 66 through the end of the chapter, is there any discussion, any comments on any of these verses or anything that I said or any clarification needed? Yeah, it's a deep issue. But I think that the answer and the key to correct interpretation is looking at who Jesus is talking to, looking at their attitude and belief or lack of belief, their incorrect belief, and how specifically they are believing and how Jesus responds to them. We get the, the whole structure here. He's not talking to you know, any and all peoples from all over the world. He's specifically talking to Jewish people in this context that don't believe that Jesus is God. Yes. Yeah. And that's the issue here. Even, even 2,000 years ago, that's exactly the issue that he was dealing with. And we find that today, and through the various commentaries that have been written in the various Jewish writings, like you said, there's any and all kinds of views all over the place. And um, it's like an argument that's recorded down sometimes because many rabbis interpret different passages differently. But now... Since Jesus has come, a lot of those oral traditions and those interpretations of different passages have been just flipped to completely for the sole purpose of not proving that Jesus is who he said he was. Kind of after the fact, going in and changing what their you know, belief or interpretation is. Their official stance on a passage gets changed so as not to point to Jesus as being the Messiah. Absolutely. Okay. We're doing good, I think. Famous last words, I think we might be done a little bit early. Okay. All right. So, verse number 66, okay? John chapter 6, verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back. Again, students. 
those that were listening to his teachings, not necessarily those that believed, but those that followed him around physically, heard his voice, put themselves under his teaching. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. They said, I've, I've, I've had it. This is, this is enough. This is too much. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will you also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe. Now here, Peter is speaking for the entire twelve. He doesn't know their hearts. But he, he makes a statement. We believe, which, um, you know, for the eleven's sake, you know, as you guys ever see Bear Grylls, he's a, I don't know, I always want to say this. He always says, good on, good on you. Instead of good for you, I guess in the UK they say good on you. So good on them, good on Peter. But good on those 11 that believed, okay? They received what Jesus said. Even after this hard saying, they understood that what he was saying was not cannibalism, but spiritual truth about Jesus providing his flesh and his blood for the salvation of the world. Um, and I think, I think this is the point where I need to interject something that uh, is kind of really neat. So how does that all work out? Jesus talking about his, his flesh and his blood being given for the life of the world and ingesting or, 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 or eating, okay? It's not talking about, obviously not talking about a physical, literal fulfillment but rather talking about a spiritual truth of receiving him. Okay, John 1.12, To as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Here, the Jewish people were doing the opposite. They were pushing him away. They were rejecting him. They weren't receiving him. And again, if their attitudes weren't as such, I don't know, we'll have to ask Jesus when we get to heaven, if that conversation ever would have went down that road that far because of their heart of unbelief. Jesus just let them... You know, he, he ran them off, okay, basically, because he knew what their hearts were. Uh, John chapter 6. But what's interesting to me, how is our salvation provided? Well, Jesus' flesh, as he says, was broken for us, okay? I believe that gives reference to his death, okay? He died on the cross, and just as important... And you can't really say one is more important than the other, but they're both important. If Jesus just, you know, cut his, cut his hand or something, you know, God did not work the plan of the gospel to be so that blood could be spilled without the taking of a life. Okay, and God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus on the cross. Death, 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 death. Jesus died. His flesh was broken. And his blood, his precious blood that we're told in 1 Peter that's what we're redeemed by, by the precious blood of Christ. Those that say that there could be death without blood or blood without death, they both need to be there. Otherwise, he would have just said, drink my blood. Or otherwise, he would have just said, eat my flesh. But they're both there. They're both important. Jesus' death and his blood being shed, that is God's recipe for our atonement, for our salvation, for our forgiveness, for his wrath being satisfied in Christ. And so... When Jesus gives all of these statements about how if you do this, you'll have eternal life. If you do this, you'll have forgiveness. If you do this, you'll never hunger. You'll never thirst. It's all spiritual. But when we look so much deeply at 
refuting a false understanding of that passage. And by the way, there's some that get into, I'm not sure which one is which, but transubstantiation and consubstantiation, saying that at communion or the Lord's Supper, that there's some kind of mystical, it really is the body and the blood. And I can guarantee you they take a passage like this and they take it out of context and say, well, he said we needed to eat it and drink it. And that's just, that's ridiculous. That's not what it's saying at all. But when we get so ingrained in trying to refute that, sometimes we miss a blessing. Sometimes we miss the amazing truth that we never have to hunger. We never have to thirst. I mean, physically we do. Sure, we're in this flesh. We're in this body. He's not talking about literal physical hunger and thirst. But he's talking about spiritual. Okay? And so as lost people are searching and searching and searching for satisfaction, you know, people are committing suicide left and right. People that have everything that anybody could ever want, they're taking their own life. Why? Because they find that at the end of their searching, there's nothing that they have come across that gives them what they are looking for. But guess what? You and I here in this room today, if we have trusted Jesus and his flesh and blood being broken and spilled for us 2,000 years ago, we trust that atonement. Today, here and now, we never have to thirst. We never have to hunger. Our search is done if you've come to Jesus. If you refuse to come to him like these here are, these disciples that walk away, they're going to continue to have a hole in their heart that's not going to be fulfilled by anything. And they're going to drive themselves mad because God created us with that vacuum in our heart that there's no fulfillment outside of him. Uh, that fellowship that was lost and broken in the Garden of Eden. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're hoping for. And now as Christians, there's application. Because what do we do sometimes? We say, oh, maybe having that thing would make me happy. Or maybe doing that activity would really bring me fulfillment. And we start looking for satisfaction outside of the Lord himself. Now, there's nothing wrong with things, but when we look at those things and get our eyes off of Christ, we start to sink like Peter did in the water. And we try and fill things up with material, materialism, guess what? We're going to be most miserable. Um, or whatever it might be. It might be looking for some kind of recognition or some kind of, you know, a, a, what's the word? Accolades? There we go. I was going to say it, but I couldn't get it out right. Um, you know, looking for some kind of status or looking for some kind of whatever it may be. As Christians, we aren't immune to that, you know. We can be like the prodigal. We can go wandering, looking for fulfillment and finding that the best thing that we ever had was our Father who loves us and gives us so many things, grace undeserved. Um, anyway, so don't miss that. So, Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen, Peter. That's, that's wonderful. But then guess what Jesus says? Jesus kind of bursts Peter's bubble a little bit. Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? I don't know if you put yourself in Peter's shoes. You ever been in a situation where it kind of just like your heart just drops, you know? I don't know if Peter felt that way, but I probably would have, as far as I can think. Um, now, this is partially in response to Peter's declaration that no one will leave. 
You know, Jesus says, will you go away also? Speaking to the twelve. And Peter says, where will we go? You have the words of life. We believe. Jesus' response that, uh, you know, haven't I chosen you twelve, one of you is a devil. Partially in response to Peter's declaration that no one will leave, Judas will. Okay? Um, at Jesus' crucifixion, they all forsook him and fled. Right? But the only one that forsook him indefinitely was Judas. This verse, in combination with verses 64 and 65, and John 17, 12, gives us an incredible exception to the given. Now, who is the given? We've seen over and over and over in this passage. Who is the given? Believers. It is synonymous with those that have learned of the Father, uh, heard and learned of the Father. It's from those that have seen the Son and believed. It's, it's, it's those that have trusted Him, those that have received Him, those that are the true believers. Verse 64 and 65, Jesus says, there's some of you that believe not. He knew who would betray him, okay? Judas didn't believe. He was never a believer. Judas was never saved. Verse 65, therefore I said unto you, no man can come to me except it were given to him of my father. We see Judas, he kept the bag, right? It got to the point where uh, the woman that anointed Jesus' feet with the ointment of spikenard, and it was, th you know, worth uh, 300 um, pence, and uh, 300, you know, days work, a year's wages. And what did Jesus, Ju Judas say? He said, Lord, why is this waste of the ointment made? It should have been given to the poor. You know, he had his eyes on what? The literal, the physical, the temporal. And based on what Jesus says in all of these passages here, verse 64, 65, and the whole context of John chapter 6, we find out something interesting that we can kind of surmise, I guess, it's a dangerous thing to do, but kind of um, understand about Judas to be quite possibly true, is that his rejection of Jesus, his unbelief, was the same kind of rejection and unbelief that these other disciples here had. It just so happens that Jude, Judas stayed with him physically. Judas didn't walk away. Judas eventually ended up betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But it can pretty well be assumed or thought reasonably that Judas, in the same way, didn't want to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He didn't want to believe Jesus was God. He um, is possibly linked with the Sicarii I mentioned before, his name Judas Iscariot, okay? The sect of the Sicarii, those that were extremely zealous for the Jewish people and the Jewish nation in Israel. And if somebody was shown to have any kind of alliance or favoritism or uh, leniency even towards Rome, okay, or somebody was found to be working with Rome, they had a dagger, the Sicarii, and they would take that person's life. So Judas was most likely very zealous for the nation of Israel, uh, but he had a completely misplaced idea of who the Messiah was going to be. He didn't believe. He was never saved. He never received the Son. He never believed that Jesus came from the Father. It wasn't because the Father refused him, it was because he knew from before the foundation of the world, Judas is going to betray me. Jesus didn't make him do it. The Father didn't make him do it. Um, okay. Without a doubt, based on Scripture, Judas was never a believer, and yet he was given to Jesus by the Father. He is a given in the sense of being joined to Jesus' flock, but not in the sense of a truly born-again believer. Judas is a once-in-history exception 
to the given. Okay, because everywhere else in John chapter 6, especially, we see this clearly stated that the given are those that have seen the Son and believed. They are those that have heard, of the heard and learned of the Father. Turn real quickly here as we finish. Uh, let, let's read verse 71. So we'll be officially done with the chapter, but I want, to, I want us to turn to John 17 after this. He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Now, turn to John chapter 17. You can leave John 6. It's okay. We're done with John 6. Next time that I teach, we'll begin with John 7. But turn over to John 17. Now, while we're turning there, I need to, I need to mention something very important. Throughout history, Judas has become the Jewish mascot, so to speak, to those that are anti-Semitic. Okay, they will point to Judas as the characterization of all of the Jewish people that have ever lived. They blame the Jewish people for Jesus' death, and his betrayal is picturized in Judas, which the name Judah is related to the Jewish people. Okay? Now, there was another Judas that was one of Jesus' disciples. We don't ever hear about him. We don't hear about the other 11 who were all also Jewish, and yet they believed. And so I kind of want to clear the air as far as this, whether you've heard of it or not, that the terming Judas as a type of the typical Jewish person is absolutely from the pit of hell. That is absolutely satanic. And um, we don't even think about the others that are named Judah, Judas. Judas is the Greek version of Judah. And so we have another Judas um, in, in, in the New Testament, in the, in the um, disciples. And we also have the book of Jude, which is Judah. Okay, they're all, they're all the same thing. It was a very common name back then. Okay, so don't look at Judas like, you know, he was Jewish and the other ones were Gentile. That's kind of how a lot of people looked at, looked at uh, the disciples. It's a crazy, twisted world where, um, anyway, all right, so I better keep my promise and we'll, we'll get done, okay? John chapter 17. Um, okay, now I'm going to skim through and read some phrases, starting with verse 2 down to verse 12, okay? And just follow me as I read these phrases. I'll tell you what verse to look in. Starting in verse 2 of John 17. Now, this is Jesus' prayer, right? His high priestly prayer. We'll get here eventually, by the way, eventually, if the Lord doesn't come back first, and we'll go through it in depth. Verse 2, he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Okay, given to Jesus equals having eternal, eternal life. Verse 6, thine they were, and thou gavest them me. He's speaking about believers. Verse number 7, all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. Verse number eight, and they, and, uh, okay, for I have given unto them the words which thou hast given me, and they have received them. Those that have received Jesus' words, those that have believed, he's not just talking about the eleven or the twelve. He's talking about all believers. They have believed that thou, thou didst send me. Verse number nine, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Verse number 11, Holy Father, keep through thine own name thou, uh, those whom thou hast given me. Okay, 
So we see again, not only in John 6, but here in John 17, over and over and over, the phrase given, thou hast given me, those that have eternal life, those that all that thou hast given me be raised up at the last day, they're saved, okay? That's the key. But there's an exception, a once in history exception that is laid out for us in black and white. Verse number 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. The son of perdition, perdition means destruction. It's translated elsewhere, the same Greek word is translated elsewhere in this um, scripture passage, or I mean in the, in, in the New Testament, it's translated as perish, it's translated as destroyed. And so, out of all those that thou hast given me, and again, I believe this is a broader understanding than just the 11 or just the 12, because it's speaking of those that have heard his words and received them, those that have believed on his name. And we have John chapter 6 as well to see that we are also the given. But the son of perdition is lost. And then it says that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, I have some comments here. With, with Jesus' foreknowledge, at the end of your last page there, with Jesus' foreknowledge of who Judas was and what he would do, he still chose him to be one of the twelve. Jesus said in verse number 70, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Skip back up to verse number 64. Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. Okay, so it's not said anywhere here at all that God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit or the Father or anybody made Judas not believe, okay? He was an unbeliever, he had a wicked heart, and Jesus knew that, and Jesus chose him to be a follower, to be a disciple, to be a student, to sit under Jesus' feet. Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Jesus says in verse number 70. Um, in this sense, he chose him to be one of his disciples, one of the twelve. This is the sense in which he was given to Jesus of the Father. As mentioned before, Judas was never a believer. As the son of perdition, he was used as an agent of God to do his will. None of anything that Judas did was out of Judas's control. God never violated his will. God allowed Judas to be one of the twelve based on his foreknowledge of what Judas would do. Okay? Now, this is John chapter 6. Is there any questions or comments or discussion before we have the goodies? Yes. Um, we can't have a perfect understanding or absolutely validate that understanding outside of Scripture because you never know um, what interpretations are being read into things. Like, for instance, we have the oral tradition, okay, the tradition that Jesus blasted the Pharisees so often for using and making above the Word of God. He said that you make the Word of God uh, void by your traditions because they conflict. Um, those traditions were codified and written down after the time of the New Testament. 
okay? Um, in those teachings and in those codified oral traditions, we can get a sense of what the Jewish children were taught and what interpretations of scripture they were learning at Jesus, in Jesus' day. Um, we find many rabbis listed there um, who came much later than Jesus, much later. Um, we're talking about like the 1200s, 1100s, uh, and so on, and those commentaries. Um, so we can't really get a, a, a perfect sense, but we can definitely get a general idea based on uh, the Jewish writings, as well as some historical documents like Josephus and, 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 and things like that. That's outside of scripture uh, as well. But we know that like, for instance, people like Timothy, he was taught from his youth, you know, in a good way. So it may have varied depending on who was doing the teaching. Absolutely, good question. Anybody else? Okay, you guys all look awake and alert. That's a good sign, right? Good sign for me anyway. Okay, all right. Well, I'll go ahead and close in a word of prayer, and, uh, and then we'll be done. Thank you, Lord, for helping us get through this, this weighty passage, Lord, this um, lengthy chapter. And I pray, Lord, that um, we have a better understanding of a lot of those subjects that are dealt with in this chapter. I pray most of all, Lord, that uh, we have a, a higher and better uh, understanding and a more glorifying understanding of, of, of who Jesus is and um, how to be able to share him with your people. Well, we pray for them. So often passages like this are used by wicked people um, to attack the Jewish people. And Lord, we look at a passage like this and we want the Jewish people uh, that are here today, alive today, we want them to be able to understand uh, that Jesus, the Son, was sent by the Father and that salvation is intrinsically connected with the God of Israel and his, his work in the life of those that um, would understand the truth of Scripture and come to faith. And Lord, we just pray that you would work in our lives to have more of a burden for those that we come across and maybe even, you know, those that we don't come across, but that we would pray. Pray for those uh, in this ministry and other ministries like it that try and reach the Jewish world for Jesus. And I, I pray that you would give us more of a burden for that. We thank you for the food that's provided. Lord, we, we thank you for um, everything that you've done for us. We just pray that you would um, bless the remainder of our time, the food, the fellowship. And we pray that you would uh, help us to have a good rest of the night tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4433. Shalom.